Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. Another fantastic episode for you. I am interviewing Jeffrey Deskovic. Now, this is an extremely interesting podcast and not one that I, I think that I'll have again. Um, he actually was um, a person who was convicted of rape and murder um, back when he was a high school student. And I guess the, the clincher and the, the kicker and all this is it was, it was a crime that he did not commit. He was wrongfully convicted of both of these things. Um, we share that story and the um, things that happened that led up to that wrongful conviction, you know, his time in prison um, where he, you know, fought desperately to, to get out and uh, prove that uh, he was innocent. He spent 16 years on that fight, 16 years in prison um, for crimes that he did not commit. After he was released, he started a foundation to help others um, not go through the same thing that, that he's went through. You know, there's several foundations out there doing this, um, and in his foundation is an absolutely terrific one. We're going to learn a little bit more about that and what sets it apart. Um, but just an absolutely fascinating conversation, just a, a fantastic guy. You know, he's been through a lot, um, but he's been able to do such great things um, even after such you know, personal tragedy um, towards him. So we're going to talk, you know, about his individual story, about, you know, criminal justice and criminal justice reform as a whole, um, his foundation, the documentary that's uh, made about him. Um, just a, a really interesting conversation. I hope, uh, hope you enjoy this one. Hope you learn a lot. And uh, here's my interview with Jeffrey Deskovic. I am here today with Jeffrey Deskovic. De Jeffrey, how are you? I'm great, huh? Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. Thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's nice to just relax and talk with you and not not be in a huff. <laughs> there you go. Didn't take you take didn't take you long to, to I guess use that that little pun, right? Yeah, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I like it. So yeah, so I mean, this this podcast is generally a, a very kind of relaxed one. It is a a more serious topic today. Um, so if you would, you know, it, it, we we're going to talk a lot about wrongful conviction, and that's something that, that you have a lot of experience with. Um, before we kind of get into you know your wrongful conviction, tell us a little bit about you know the circumstances in the case that you were wrongfully convicted of. Sure. I was wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape, which, which I did not commit. Um, I was arrested when I was 16. I turned 17 um, just before the trial commenced, which I lost. Um, I, I was convicted despite a pretrial negative DNA test result. The conviction was caused by a coerced false confession, prosecutorial misconduct, fraud by the medical examiner, terrible public defender. I was given a 15 to life sentence. I lost seven appeals. I got turned down for parole and ultimately I was exonerated through further DNA testing, which affirmed uh, my innocence while identifying the actual perpetrator who, who uh, his DNA was in the data bank because he killed the second victim three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case. 
Mm. Well, you, I, I can tell that you've, you've had to narrow down that several times. You, you kind of just went over everything we need to talk about. We're going to kind of, we're going to kind of deeply uh, to talk about it each, each area. So, yeah, I mean, it was obviously a very serious thing, murder and, and rape. Um, and it was of a, a high school student that was, was in your high school, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, so what was your, I guess, connection with the victim? And the victim's name was Angela Cor- Carrera? Correa, very close. Correa. Correa. Yes. Correa. Okay. Uh, she was in two of my classes as a freshman, uh, one as a sophomore. That was it. I weren't even on a high buy basis. I think I spoke to her for like five minutes in the, in the aggregate over two years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and what, so what, I mean, how did her, I guess, her murder happen? Was, was it just found one day or, or what exactly happened there? So she was in a photography class and her professor, you know, instituted a buddy system where the female students were paired up with the male students and they were given instructions to go and shoot certain foliage. And the male student who had been assigned to her uh, played hooky on the assignment. And um, I guess this was the one day because she lived a very sheltered life as I understood it. She never went anywhere unless she was with her older sister, her parents. Um, this was the one day she, I, I think that she wanted to stretch her wings a little bit. So she went to her house with her sister. Her sister went into the restroom. And when her sister came out of the restroom, uh, Angela was gone with the camera. So she went to go take the photos in the park uh, where she had the misfortune of encountering the actual perpetrator who was um, on this path. It was a wooded area and he was high on drugs and he attacked her and ultimately uh, raped and murdered her. So she went uh, missing on a Wednesday and uh, there was an article in a local newspaper and there were announcements made in the high school PA system and ultimately her body was found several days later, which was also the subject of a newspaper article. And, you know, between then and when an arrest was made, there were plenty of town hall meetings and safety protocols and updates that kind of thing. And the whole town, the whole city of Peekskill basically came to a halt. The parents were literally coming to the high schools, dropping their um, children off and coming back and picking them up and bringing them straight home. Yeah. And tell us just a little bit about, you know, the, the town you grew up in. I think a lot of people, when they hear New York, you know, they think of only think of New York City, which most of the state of New York is nice, small, sleepy communities. So I think that was the case with yours too, right? I would agree with that. Yeah. So Peekskill was, um, it's called a city. I mean, I think it really probably should be called a town, but you know, it's officially referred to as a city, but there was only like 25,000 people that lived there. It was uh, middle-class, ethnically diverse. It really wasn't all that much going on. It was the suburbs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you know, you mentioned that you, probably only spoke with with this victim just a a few times ever so how did the police i guess pinpoint you as as a subject uh, sub suspect to even talk about to at all they interviewed a lot of students from the high school and because i was quiet into myself some of them told the police they might want to speak with me because i stuck out i guess their thinking is people that are quiet and and um a little bit withdrawn commit heinous crimes i guess that's what the underlying uh, philosophy is on that as to why class, you know, classmates would, would suggest that uh, to them. Uh, a second factor is um, this was really my first brush with death. 
albeit at the distance we've already described, and I did have an emotional reaction to it. Uh, then again, my reaction wasn't all that different from the emotional reaction of many people in Peekskill, to the point that free mental health services were offered to anyone who wanted it. But the police thought that my being having an emotional reaction was suspicious, like it was some sort of outward sign of my being sorry for what I had done. With a reinforcing factor being that the uh, Peekskill police, they got a psychological profile from the NYPD, which purported to have the psychological characteristics of the actual perpetrator. And I had the misfortune of uh, matching that. And so it was a type of reinforcement. Hmm. Yeah, that, that is an, an interesting thing. I think it's kind of common when there's a, a big tragedy, a, you know, a shooting, a murder and things like that, that there are, you know, people that come into high schools to deal with people that are grieving, even over people that they didn't necessarily know that well. So that doesn't seem like it's super uncharacteristic. And that doesn't seem like that should be something that makes you a suspect. So that's kind of crazy. Uh, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. So tell us just a little bit about, you know, the, the interrogation, because I know that you did, um, you know, confess to something that, that you didn't do. So tell us about the interrogation. I've, you know, I've listened to a few of your other interviews and I know that it was, it was quite an intense, intense process. Right. So for about six weeks, the police played this cat and mouse game with me. Half the time they talked to me as a suspect and the other half the time they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. So when they would push too hard and I would want to get out of there and become uh, frightened, uh, Jeff as the junior detective helper theme was something that they played up. So um, the kids won't talk freely around us. They will around you. Let us know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They'd ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was correct. Uh, before I was a teenager, the career I wanted to have when I grew up was to be a cop. So that obviously intersected with that uh, theme. Uh, they did the good cop, bad cop routine. My father was never involved in my life in any aspect. I never spoke with him. And I began to look up to the officer who was pretending to be my friend as a positive adult male role model. Uh, so that's all in the six weeks leading up to the day of the course false confession. It was a school day. I went to the police station for the test. My mother and grandmother thought I was in school. Uh, they drove me, three officers drove me from Peekskill uh, across county lines about 40 minutes away. Um, and uh, they brought me to this uh, Putnam County Sheriff's investigator who was the polygraphist. He was dressed as a civilian. He never identified himself as a cop. He never read me my rights. Uh, the Peekskill police read me my rights when I got into the car to drive with them there, specifically with the also being pretending to be my friend. The other two were in a different vehicle. But I was 16. I didn't understand my rights. And it was further obscured by him pretending to be my friend in the whole junior detective helper routine. So I had no attorney present. I wasn't given anything to eat. Uh, they gave me a four-page brochure about how the polygraph worked. But it had a lot of words in it that I didn't understand, but I figured I was there to help the police. So what does it matter? Let's, let's just get on with it. So from there, they put me in a small room and they attached the polygraph to me. And uh, then they launched into his, well, before he attached the polygraph, he gave me countless cups of coffee. Let me say that to get me nervous. I was not a regular coffee drinker by any means at 16. 
and uh, from there he attached the polygraph machine to me and then he launched into his third degree tactic. So he invaded my personal space. He raised his voice at me. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. And towards the end, he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test result that you did. We just wanted, uh, want you to confirm it. And then the cop who had been pretending to be my friend, he told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he was holding them off but couldn't do so any longer, that I had to help myself. Then he added that if I did what they wanted, they'd stop what they're doing, that I was going to go home afterwards, and I was not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, just being concerned my safety in the moment. Uh, I was in fear of my life. The fact that I didn't know where I was and no one else knew where I was either loomed pretty large in my mind. And I was overwhelmed emotionally and psychologically. Uh, then, you know, on one hand, he, there was a possibility of harm. He threw in the air and he threw me this false life preserver. So I made up, a I made a decision to um, make up a story based on information they gave me uh, then and in the six weeks run up to it. In the end, I ultimately, I spoke faster than what I could make the story up. And so that, and just being overwhelmed overall, I wound up collapsing into a fetal position, uh, crying uncontrollably. And um, I, you know, was, I was in fact arrested despite the promise to the contrary. Yeah, that's, that's, that's terrible. I, I guess it's kind of a hard question, but mm -hmm. I mean, why do you think that, that they, I guess the police did this? Do you think that they truly thought that you were the, the suspect and they, they had to break you or did they just need to find somebody and it didn't matter who, or I guess I just don't understand why they, they did what they did in your situation. I think that they, they just wanted to make it appear as if they solved it. So, uh, I mean, the first person that they came to was the, was the victim's stepfather, but then when he hired a retired um, uh, New York uh, NYPD detective, to investigate the crime that they moved on from him. And then there was another youth that, that was a suspect, but then he had a stepfather in the home who brought, got him a public defender. Um, and then they moved on to me, I know, but I didn't have a stepfather in the home, but you know, I don't, I don't think that they thought that I was, uh, I don't think that they thought I was guilty. I mean, you know, the idea that this was a good faith error, the bottom drops out of that argument when you think about they knew that they do you think about that you know they lied about the threat and false promise um they interviewed about seven once the dna didn't match me they interviewed 17 witnesses who told the cops that uh she didn't have a boyfriend there was no consensual sex and they purposely did not uh, they did not record any of those witness interviews hmm. yeah so i mean the ideal of, you know, this, the system would be this, this happened to you. This was, this was wrong. But then when you get to trial, um, you know, the facts would matter and, and you would be exonerated, but that didn't happen either. So tell us a little bit about the trial and the, I guess, kind of the illegal tactics and the things that they did in, in the trial to, uh, I guess, to continue on the, the wrongful conviction ultimately. Right. Well, like I mentioned, I mean, you know, they left the threat and false promise out of their testimony. The interrogation was not video or audio tape. So that's how they were able to get away with that. Uh, the prosecutor, uh, well, firstly, even just to get to the trial, uh, you know, one day before officially getting the results of the DNA test from the FBI lab, he ran to the grand jury and, and indicted me, which allowed him to not to get away with not presenting them the results. 
but then after that, uh, he got the medical examiner to commit fraud to, you know, he claimed, the medical examiner claimed six months after doing the autopsy, he claimed that he remembered that he forgot to document medical evidence that he said showed uh, the victim uh, had been sexually active, which is what allowed the prosecutor to argue it didn't matter that the semen didn't come from me. It didn't mean I was innocent. There was just yet another person that she slept with before I murdered and raped her. Taking it a step further, he named another youth by name that he claimed had slept with the victim, but he never set the proper evidentiary foundation. So he never had a DNA test performed. He didn't call him as a witness. Uh, he just made the improper argument, unsupported argument. My lawyer essentially didn't defend me. He rarely met with me. Uh, when I tried to explain to him I was innocent and what happened in the interrogation room, he was always shutting me up. Uh, he never presented my alibi witness. He never tried to discredit this medical examiner. He never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that it proved the confession was coerced and false. And uh, he didn't he didn't allow me to um, testify there either. Uh, he should have never represented me because of a conflict of interest. So this other youth of the prosecutor was falsely saying had slept with the victim. He was represented by another member of that same public defender's office. And so that prevented the defense from asking him for a DNA test or calling him as a witness. Uh, you know, so add it all up. I was wrongfully convicted. Well, I want to add one more thing, though. You know, at times he argued to the jury that the confession never happened. And at still other times he argued that it did happen, but that it was false and that it was coerced. So, I mean, taking a scattershot approach like that, it must have left him with zero credibility with the, with the jury, you know, and ultimately, uh, and, and, you know, he, he didn't put on a defense, you know, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. So added all up, I was, uh, I was convicted and, you know, given the 15 to life sentence, despite the judge telling me, you know, maybe you are innocent. And I was sent to a men's maximum security prison. So, you know, it, it may be, it's a strange thing to probably even describe, but I mean, how did it feel, you know, to be there and be convicted and be sent to prison, you know, that day for something that, that you knew that you didn't do and that this whole thing had just, I guess, had been completely, I, I don't know, just out to, I don't want to say out to get you, but, but certainly the, they, they weren't doing you any favors. Right. No, the whole system was working against me here. You're absolutely correct on that for sure. Mm. Um, well, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't believe my hearing. I did. I, I went, well, did, did I just hear that right? Did I, did I miss the word not in front of the word guilty? So I, I couldn't believe it. I, I felt like I was in a nightmarish alternative reality. You know, I doubted my own uh, hearing. So did you think, you know, through this whole process, even when, you know, you had been um, charged with it and then you were going to trial did you think, well, this is, they'll, they'll, they'll finally get this straightened out. I know I didn't do anything. Or did you think, you know, they're, I, I can already tell that they're, they're trying to, to pin this on me. Well, initially I felt like, I felt that um, I can already tell that they're trying to pin this on me. And I, you know, I think they're going to get away with what they're doing. And, you know, that led me to do a, to make a suicide attempt, which resulted in my being involuntarily hospitalized for six months. But somewhere along the way of that, and, and, you know, in the short months after I was released from that, but prior to the trial, you know, a, a lot of members of my extended family, you know, oh, don't worry about it. You know, you, you're not guilty. They're going to find you not guilty. The system's going to work. And at some point I bought into that. 
So going into the trial, I fully expected to win because you're innocent. I mean, if the idea that you're innocent and you expect to be wrongfully convicted, I mean, that's that's kind of a bizarre line of reason that not, not many people go down. Yeah, yeah. So you you were ultimately in uh, in prison for 16 years. Yes. Uh, t- tell us just, I guess, kind of briefly, just a little bit about that that time and and I guess waking up every day knowing that you're there for something that you didn't do. Well, it was kind of surreal. I mean, half the time I couldn't quite believe that I was there. I mean, the odds of any one of those things happening, which uh, did and which culminated into the wrongful conviction, the odds of any of them seem long, much less that all of those things uh, would occur. Uh, But beyond that, um, I think that I would describe it as a nonstop obstacle course that featured the guards, prisoners, and the civilians all as obstacles to the main goal, which was to try to overturn the conviction and regain my freedom. So in terms of uh, how I got through it, Uh, belief in God was one thing. Another thing was that um, I was kind of living from appeal to appeal. So I didn't focus on the 15 in life sentence. I thought I was just doing a year or two, which until the next appeal, which I was certain I was going to win because I was innocent and that I would go home. I went to the law library, used to, you know, learn the law. I used to collect articles about other people being exonerated as uh, motivation to keep going. Uh, from 1998 to 2006, I used to read uh, three or four nonfiction books a week. You know, you develop little little routines in, in, in the prison. I mean, I engaged in this elaborate delusion that uh, when I played basketball or played chess or played ping pong, that I was a professional player and that so was the other people there. But it wasn't like kids on a, on a, on a playground someplace. It was more that it was a defense. I needed to leave the prison for a couple of hours. I listened to sports talk radio on Saturdays, but but it wasn't sports talk radio. It was a lifeline to the outside. And when they gave us televisions in the cell, I mean, for the most part, it stayed off because I was doing legal work and writing letters, you know, looking for help and reading nonfiction books. But I did watch certain programs every week. And uh, I, again, I pretended that I was not watching TV. I pretended like I was visiting with friends. I mean, it's it's a crazy place in there. So I had to engage in some, some unorthodox uh, tactics. Right. And, and I, I heard in a, another interview too, I mean, obviously with the conviction that you had and, and rape, that's, that's not necessarily one that you necessarily want to have in prison either. So. Correct. That makes you a target. I mean, you know, and at times I was assaulted over the years and, you know, time, you know, and one time I almost lost my life. But the idea that people would discover what I was incarcerated for and that that could lead to uh, that could lead to random acts of violence from any and all quarters, it, that was on the back of, that stayed on the back of my mind the, the whole 16 years for sure. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know that while you were in there, you know, if anything good came of it, you, you did, uh, you did get your, you got a diploma or something like that, right? You got a GD. And cause I was, you know, my high school was interrupted by the arrest. So I did get the GED. I got the associates. I completed a year towards the bachelor's before funding was cut for college education from prisoners. Uh, I did learn how to type. Uh, so, I mean, and, you know, and I did a lot of other trades, but you know, those, like I did plumbing, I did general business, uh, took a, became certified as a painter's helper, but all those trades really, those, those, that was obsolete before I even went into the shop. So most of it, you know, wasn't that beneficial, but the thing that helped me, helps me the most now, 
I would say definitely was, you know, learn, learning the type. Uh, I did practice on Windows 95. <laughs> so a little bit of that. And I did receive some training and in fact worked as a teacher's aide several times. So I did receive training on how adults learn. And, you know, I've been able to apply that to myself um, since I've been home and uh, successfully, you know, getting the bachelor's degree from the scholarship at Mercy College, the master's degree from John Jerry, and ultimately the law degree and being licensed as an attorney from the Elizabeth Haupt School of Law at Pace University. Yeah, that's that's really good. Something else, you know, we're going to talk a lot more about your foundation here in a little bit and in the work that you're doing. But I know from just from speaking to other people who have been incarcerated um, and I, I guess, you know, were you laser focused while you were in in prison on your your case in the appeals? Because I know a lot of times when when somebody is as good at that certain thing, they start, I guess, helping other people on their cases and stuff like that. Did, did, did any of that happen while you were in prison? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Sure. Yeah. I, yeah, I did. I, I helped other people some on their, on their case. Uh, for the most part, I was laser focused on my case, but I did come across some other prisoners who had the same issues in their case that I had in mind. Uh, there was one guy you might find interesting, uh, Frank Sterling, who is also wrongfully imprisoned, uh, on a false confession case. And, um, uh, so I helped a little bit, you know, on that, you know, more consulting and stuff like that. But Frank and I kept each other going for 13 and a half years also. Once every six weeks, we would meet up in the yard and half of the conversation would be about trying to keep each other going morale-wise. And the other half of the conversation would kind of be like a brainstorm session of, you know, did, what was the latest thing and what's the newest tactic to engage in. And Frank was ultimately exonerated a couple of years after I was as well. Yeah, that, that's a good thing. And did your, how, how was your family? Were they supportive through all this? Because I mean, obviously you, you, you've been in prison. I haven't, but I, I know that everyone in prison is, is not, is not guilty, um, you know, based off of, of them. So did your, did your family, you know, did they, they continue to support you even after the, the conviction? I guess it depends on what you mean when you say support you. Uh, they believed in my innocence, except for one of my, you know, I had an uncle that was by marriage uh, who was a member of law enforcement and the police managed to convince him that I was guilty. So he thought I was guilty and his daughter thought that I was guilty. But the rest of the extended family uh, believed in my innocence, but uh, that didn't translate into them. You know, my mother made several trips where we try to get people just to contribute a manageable amount of money to hire a lawyer and you know everybody declined to do that uh and um you know i, I had very few the overwhelming majority of my extended family you know that they, they didn't visit they didn't write um i didn't have any contact uh with them i had a few different sets of aunts and uncles but you know they would visit disappear for three years visit disappear and you know that was it so um you know, my mother came to see me, but uh, she was the most consistent visitor. But then uh, the last six years, I would see her like once every six months. So in many ways, though not literally, uh, from for most per for most intents and purposes, I essentially did the time myself. So how did the eventual release happen? Three factors happened. So the Innocence Project agreed to represent me. Uh, they got on board because of uh, a letter that I sent to a publishing company in care of 
to, to an author and care of the publishing company instead was sent to, to an investigator and she encouraged me to write them and uh, she lobbied them from outside the organization got other respected legal entities to lobby them also. Uh, then I got lucky that uh, one of the members of the Innocence Project, Maggie Taylor, uh, who was not an attorney, uh, she, um, she presented my case to them um, like three times, uh, you know, they didn't want to go forward with it in the first two. Uh, so that was, so getting their legal representation was the first thing. And the second thing was the district attorney who had fought all of my appeals and prevented me from getting further DNA testing. She left office. And the third thing was that we got lucky that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank. Uh, so uh, because he killed the second victim three and a half years later after killing the victim in my case, who was a school teacher and had two children. So that, that's what resulted in his DNA being in the data bank. So those three things came together and, you know, the conviction was overturned October 22nd, 2006, and then officially dismissed on actual innocence grounds on November 2nd, 2006. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing to, to point out, you know, the, the wrongful conviction, it wasn't like, you know, he was already, the person who actually did it was already in prison. He, you know, them wrongfully convicting you actually resulted in, in someone else's death. So that's, yeah. that's a really, it's a really serious thing for sure. Yes. Yeah. So, so tell us just a little bit, um, you know, about your, your foundation. So once you, you left, um, you know, once you were, you were released, I don't know how quickly you decided to, to start a foundation and, and try to help other people, but tell us just a little bit about that. Yeah, I was an, I became an individual advocate first for five years. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, that what that looked like was I was speaking across the country. I was trading privacy for awareness, so I was doing lots of media interviews. I was meeting with elected officials. Uh, I was a columnist for a weekly newspaper. Uh, so I did that for five years while pursuing the formal education, which we spoke about before. Uh, simultaneous to that, uh, and it took five years for me to get compensated. Uh, so it was a difficult five years. That way, I lacked stability of housing. Uh, bounced around. At one point, I was only a couple of weeks out from, from a homeless shelter. Uh, I dealt with all the after effects that, that come with uh, being wrongfully convicted. So I had post-traumatic stress disorder and panic attacks, anxiety, feeling of processing things at a slow speed, uh, feeling of having been frozen in time, fear on law enforcement. There was the stigma. You were in prison for 16 years wrongfully. Yes, but you were there for 16 years. So how much did that rub off on you? Is it safe to be alone someplace with you? Uh, which obviously is a, is a, is a factor uh, hindering me, making it more difficult in terms of personal relationships. Technology was different. Cell phones, internet, GPS hadn't been created. Culture was different. Uh, cities and towns looked different. So there were all those um, difficulties. I was, never, I was always passed over for gainful employment. I was only able to make money doing presentations and, and um, writing, uh, writing articles. Uh, after about five years, I was uh, compensated, and I wanted to go to the next level on the advocacy work, continuing what I did as an individual, but adding the exonerated component and reintegrated. So I took seven figures of a portion of the money that I got, and I started the Jeffrey Desiccate Foundation for Justice, intending for it to be a legacy with the idea of freeing other people that were in the same position as I was and working on a preventative side as well uh, by the policy work. Uh, so I, we opened our doors in 2011, 
And, uh, you know, we've been able to free 10 people that were wrongfully imprisoned since then. Uh, we were able to help pass three laws. Uh, the foundation joined a bigger coalition group called It Could Happen to You, which I'm an advisory board member of, and we were able to pass an additional four laws. And from that success, we have chapters in Pennsylvania and California, which myself and the coalition founder, one more person, were the only three people in common to all those chapters. So the foundation today does its policy work through the, through the coalition. So we have the chapters in those three states. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, we have a recovery program as well. So um, uh, so, emergency, so when exonerees need emergency funding for like, you know, basic things, I mean, whether it's winter clothing, whether it's, a, whether it's a computer, whether it's emergency funding to, you know, cover car insurance or unexpected car repairs, something like that. So we do do that, uh, but we also, um, now, you know, we hold social events, I hold social events for the, for the exonerees and we train them to engage in advocacy work and they help us on the policy side of things, which, uh, you know, they do find healing and cathartic, which obviously I do as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, I guess the scary, the eye-opening side of all this is when, you know, when I've researched, you know, foundations that are, are doing what, what you do and, and help exonerate people that are wrongly convicted. The, the common theme of it is that they're, they say, you know, we're already extremely bogged down. We don't, we can't really take any new cases. So it means there's a lot of people out there that probably are in this situation. It's not, you know, in a perfect world, you would be, you know, dying for cases because there's nothing out there, but most of them are so bogged down. So that's just a, a really, a really scary fact, I guess. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So for context, uh, 19 people I did time with were exonerated either before me or after me. Uh, the National Register of Exonerations, uh, which uh, has been cataloging exonerations across the country, both in the DNA and non-DNA cases, um, to date, uh, they've tabulated uh, 2,754 exonerations from 1989 um, forward. Uh, those are the people that made it out. There is a Wayne State study that estimates that 10,000 people are wrongfully convicted each year. Um, so, you know, I think that the number uh, is 15 to 20%. Now I'll give you, I'm kind of out on the island on that in terms of the experts. Uh, a lot of lay people agree with me. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests that my estimation is correct, but a lot of other, you know, places they're at 5%, 2.5%, 1%, half a percent. But considering in any event, that there's 2.3 million people that are currently enmeshed in the justice system one way or the other, even if you go with the lowest figure, that's still, uh, that's still pretty staggering. That's a really staggering number. Uh, there are waiting lists. Everybody is bogged down. Uh, the, the majority of the organizations in the field are what I call DNA-centric. So uh, if there's no DNA in the case, most of the organizations won't take it. Uh, that's DNA is only available in 5 to 12% of all serious felony cases. So that's one of the distinguishing characteristics about my foundation is that we take both DNA and non-DNA cases on. We actually only have one DNA case. And, you know, there are actually four times the number of exonerations uh, in non-DNA cases of DNA. So they can be one. They're just more labor intensive. Yeah. So overall, you know, with this this whole experience, this whole tragedy that, that happened to you, like what is what is your overarching, I guess, feeling towards it all now? Do you still hold any kind of, you know, resentment or, or animosity towards it? It's something we didn't really mention, and you know, I'm not necessarily going to 
say names, but there's certainly people that were involved in your case that are still people you have to see, you know, in television, people that you have to see pretty high up in, in our, in our system. So I just wonder, um, you know, what your thoughts are now toward, towards all that. Yeah. So I'm not angry or bitter because I want to enjoy my life as much as I can. I can't do that if I'm angry or bitter. Um, if I was to be angry or bitter, I think I'd be the only loser in that. And I feel like I've lost so much already. Why would I want to lose the rest of my life? Uh, it's not like I'd be adversely affecting people that were involved. If I was angry or bitter, it might, might be a little tempting then. <laughs> but, um, you know, but the vehicle that allows me to, you know, um, not be angry or bitter is I take the energy and I feel and I channel it into the advocacy work. Uh, I do make sense of everything in a kaleidoscopic type of way uh, by believing that, you know, my mission in the world is to fight wrongful conviction and, you know, broader justice reform. And I think that that's why everything that happened to me did. Uh, in terms of the higher profile people, yes, it is frustrating to see them on TV and I will name names. That's not a problem. Uh, so we're talking about um, Janine Pirro, who has the, you know, the commentary show on Fox and at one point had a pair of judge shows on and to hear her tell it, she's this bastion of due process, except for the fact that when she was the DA in Westchester, and in my case, and in two other wrongful conviction cases, the Bianca TV case, Owen Days, you know, other people were, you know, wrongfully convicted also in cases that involved prosecutorial misconduct, my case was no means the only ones on her watch. She always distances herself from my case by claiming she wasn't the DA when I was convicted which is true enough, but it's kind of disingenuous because yeah, you weren't, but you took office before the first appeal was decided. You kept the ball rolling. It was your office fighting against me even though the testing didn't match me. It was your office that prevented me several times from getting uh, further DNA testing. So you mean to tell me that you don't have a hand in that? So there it was her. And of course, um, you know, there's the U.S. Supreme Court Justice, um, Sonia Sotomayor, who, um, during her confirmation process, like to frequently cite um, her empathy. Uh, but in fact, when my case was in front of her, uh, you know, um, I had, so the context was that I had filed in federal court the level below her uh, in a habeas corpus proceeding. And my lawyer gave my, my attorney was given the incorrect information by the court clerk which resulted in my paperwork arriving four days late, which the DA Piro's office urged the court, look, just rule he's late and close the books on this one, rather than, you know, and that's what, that's what they did. So now I'm stuck challenging that ruling. And so hence my crossing paths, my case crossing paths with um, Judge uh, Sotomayor, and she signed off on that lower court ruling. And then we moved, made the re-argument motion in front of her and her colleague on the bench asking for reconsideration and for all the judges on the circuit to hear the case and rule on it. They declined to do that. You know, so, all, you know, by that, by the time that that happened, um, well, had she not ruled that way, let me state it differently. Had she not ruled that way, I could have saved eight or nine years, but she didn't, you know, and um, I did try to bring that up during the confirmation hearing, but at that time, the media was still in love with Pres uh, President Obama, and uh, they basically blacked the story out. Other than the New York Times, the New York Times did a piece, the HuffPo did a piece, the AP did a piece, but beyond that, all of my efforts to get out into the national media 
you know, were, were silenced. Um, so I couldn't get through that. Uh, I was in touch with the, um, the, the Senate committee, you know, that does the confirmations, but you know, the, the Dems were in charge then and they didn't want to go against a nominee from their own party. Uh, and on the Republican side of it, you know, they, I don't think they were all that sympathetic towards somebody being time barred, you know, even though I, I was alleging that I was innocent, I had the DNA, you know, I think that that's the type of ruling, you know, that they would have supported. So as much as they didn't want her to be confirmed, they weren't willing to use that issue as a way to get there. Uh, I did communicate with both of them, but I got, I got nowhere. And so ultimately she was confirmed and, you know, she has yet to make any type of, um, public statement. I, I really would like an apology from her. I would like her to disavow that decision and to, you know, state clearly that that's not anything she would ever do again. And more importantly, uh, that she would rule differently. I mean, you, you know, proceduralism should never, ever be, uh, be elevated above somebody's substantive claim of innocence. And that's not where we're at right now in terms of the court system. Uh, I want to point out by the time most people are exonerated, their appeals have long since been over. So judges are not good at catching and correcting these cases. There is this disturbing trend of elevating the proceduralism over substance of justice. So what I mean by that is, why should it matter if I was four days late, 10 days late, I'm six months late, whatever it is, take that up with my attorney who I have no control of. I, I might even, have, you know, somebody could even be ignorant of the law on, on that. So take that up with the attorney and then make a substantive ruling on the merits of the case rather than just, but to just dismiss it. I mean, that's just brutal. That That's not even justice anymore. So there's that. And then there's another uh, tension in the justice system also, which is I would describe or sum up as um, uh, finality versus accuracy, meaning it's the idea, look, uh, you know, enough is enough already, okay? You had your day in court, you lost, how long do we have to keep going through this, right? And, and to some extent, there is a need for finality, sure. But what good is that finality if that final conclusion is not accurate? So I think that whenever there's an objective reason to reconsider a decision, then that should be what happens, only that's not what happens. Yeah, yeah, I think kind of the important thing too with that since you you did name names um that i mean they weren't afraid to do it to me right 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 yeah so but but obviously it's it's a larger issue the the, yes. the the problem because you know regardless of what side side you are you know on the aisle philosophically you can say that that you know janine priera or and no. and um Sonia Sotomayor are very different, you know, they have very different judicial philosophy, but they still, um, you know, basically created a, an issue in this case. So, so I, it's, it's more than, than just that. It, it's a, it's an overarching issue with, I think our, our system completely. hundred percent. No, I, I, I agree with that. That was, you know, I mean, and that's happened in many different cases before I kind of summarized it in that, in that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So tell us just a little bit about your, um, the, the documentary conviction about your case. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you asked. There's a documentary short called Conviction, which is about 20 minutes long. It was produced by Gia Wirtz and it's been selected by 11 different film festivals so far. We're still waiting for decisions on about a half dozen more. It has won three awards, uh, Best Cinematography, 
um, Best Picture and Award of Distinction. And in that documentary, it it doesn't, it's not legalistic, unlike many other wrongful conviction documentaries. Uh, this one is focused in on my life post-exoneration and my advocacy work. And it's uh, mostly narrated by, by, by me. I mean, obviously, Gia led me through the dialogue, but you just hear my voice. Um, so, you know, it's been great. It's, it's got my name out there more. I've done a lot more interviews since then, which is, you know, good for the foundation and it's good for wrongful conviction in general. Uh, but we are going to have an expanded, uh, there's going to be a bigger uh, hour and a half long documentary, which will come out sometime this year. That'll, that'll have other people in it. And so I'm just, I'm looking forward uh, to that. No, very, very. I want to share one thing that in terms of that documentary, though, one of the things that I'm really most proud of is that, and, and I'm, you know, and, and again, credit and kudos to, to Gia because it was her, she's on the creative side and she makes the decisions what, ended up in the cutting room and what actually made the screen. And, uh, you know, she agreed, you know, she, well, she left it in there. She didn't agree because nothing was ever run past me. Um, but um, uh, the point I'm trying to get at is that in that documentary, I'm trying to carry water for other non-innocence justice reform issues. Just my story alone and what happened speaks to the innocence, right? So that is not being neglected, but I'm speaking about very disturbing things that I saw and learned of while wrongfully in prison. So I'm talking about uh, prison reform. I'm talking about elderly people in prison whose advanced medical needs were not able to be cared for properly by, by the prison. I'm talking about compassionate release, where by the time this system makes a decision whether uh, somebody who's terminally ill will be allowed to return to society and die with a little bit of dignity. Sometimes the decisions, by the time they're made, the person died a day or two later, or the decision comes after they've passed away. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about college education for prisoners, um, um, prison reform, um, solitary. Um, then um, I'd speak a little bit about the parole process as well. You know, and how otherwise deserving applicants are, you know, routinely denied parole over and over again with the parole board not assessing whether they're rehabilitated or not, but just referring back to the crime. But the crime is not anything that's ever going to change. And, you know, so that was known on the first day before the first day was served in prison. So, you know, and, and maybe the biggest point of them all, you know, is that, you know, people, people are sent to prison as punishment, you know, meaning the loss of their freedom. They're not sent there for punished to be mistreated while they were there. Uh, I, I, how people were over-sentenced. I saw people there who were doing more time on drug possession than people that were there for, for killing people and other, mm. other, uh, other acts of violence and how for uh, technical parole violations where somebody, maybe they did not get, go back, return to inside in time for a curfew. You know, I don't think that people should be allowed to come back inside whenever they want to, you know, on parole, but I don't think that being sent back to prison for a year or two is the answer either. Maybe a fine, maybe community service or some other alternative. You know, and then there were people there who were incarcerated for nonviolent offenses. So all these different things, you know, the I'm talking about them, you know, while on, on screen, you know, and I hope that those lead to, you know, just some 
some changes in the law with respect to those issues. And those are across the board. You know, I'm talking about what I saw in the New York State prison system. But, you know, the funny thing is that those issues and the wrongful conviction causes, you know, look, your state does not do it better. Okay, sorry. Okay, those issues cut across the board. And in many situations, even even into other even into other countries. And the reason we don't hear about wrongful convictions in other countries is not because they're not happening. It's because nobody's being exonerated. That that's what's going on. Yeah. No. Those those are extremely important issues. I know that there's a lot of you know pri- prison advocates out there that you know outside of the the wrongful conviction area that just saying that you know everyone reserve, deserves some some form of respect and, and dignity you know even while they're incarcerated so I, I i certainly understand that and i think that's that's a a good thing that they were able to, to keep that in um and, and you were able to talk about it so so do tell us um you know what is what does the future hold obviously you've, you've already done a lot of great things but but what's the future hold so i'm hoping to exonerate some people as as an attorney uh, you know, I want to represent, you know, I'm already I've entered a few of the cases that we have active as, as uh, second seat, you know, co-counsel, but, um, you know, but I'm also want to represent a few people as, as the lead attorney. So I'm looking forward to that and um, using the law degree to further our policy of, of objectives. So I'm hoping to have some, you know, additional uh, laws passed. We're really close in those three states and passing some additional laws. Uh, I am looking forward to using the law degree to help some of the people who are exonerated, um, you know, get get compensated. Uh, I hope at some point that um, I get the, you know, that a major publishing house uh, wants to publish my book. I do have something that's written that's 95% done, but and I want it to be by a major publishing house that can put a budget behind it and the marketing and shelf space and um, book signing tours, that kind of thing. So I hope from that and uh, a, a movie, uh, you know, maybe, um, uh, you know, and then other, other, other forms of art, whether that's a one man show or musical, or when I get my story told as often as I can. And I think that once I establish the route of how to do that, I'd love to be like the pipeline that forwards additional exoneree stories out there as well. Um, so uh, I do, I do hope that those things are, are in store. Um, I used to think about, not all that long ago, I used to think about at some point, uh, you know, maybe in eight, eight years, or 10 years, you know, making the, making the jump to politics and go from trying to persuade people to do the right thing to, you know, actually having some power to do it. But uh, I'm kind of, kind of falling back from that a little bit right now. I mean, just um, country's so polarized right now and, you know, there's no bipartisanship. You know, I'm a middle of the road person. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly a lot of people stepping away from it to try to make a real change because there's not a lot, not a lot of change happening. You know, in in, in that particular area, I, I agree with you there. So, people who who have listened to this, interested in hearing more about you, obviously they they need to to watch the documentary. Um, you you may have already said it, but remind us where we can find the documentary and how we can, I guess, connect with you or your your story more. Yeah, so the documentary is on Amazon Prime. Uh, in, in terms of connecting more with me, um, I do have a Facebook page, Jeffrey Deskovic. There's a, I'm close to the limit on the friends on my personal page, but um, I do have a public figure page. And whenever I post on one, I copy over to the other so you can keep up with me, my advocacy work there. 
I have a LinkedIn page. I have a, you know, on uh, Instagram also. Um, so I use the social media as a way of doing the advocacy and you know information dispensing tool. There is our website, uh, which is deskovic, D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C dot org. Uh, you can email me through the website. You can message me through any of those social media platforms. I do, I do answer. Um, you know, in, in closing, you know, ultimately, one thing I, I didn't mention that I, that I do aspire to do is I ultimately would like to have a chapter of the foundation in each state and ultimately in each country, you know, in light of this being a, a worldwide problem. So, you know, that'll be when we get the public support for that. Uh, we have 10 cases that are active now, but kind of at our limit, we have seven cases that are approved that we're not able to work on. You know, uh, we would love to expand our policy work beyond just the three states. But, you know, we're trying, we're trying, we're doing some aggressive fundraising now and we're chasing potential donors and people that, that can help. We are looking to add people to the board. And, you know, my crazy pro, my crazy um, idea would be, uh, you know, if 25,000 people were willing to sacrifice a cup of coffee or one meal out just one time a month at you know, the three to five dollar level. No, not even a meal, right? I mean, that's just a McDonald's. Um, but um, if you'd sacrifice on a recurring basis, we do have our crowdfunding uh, site on Patreon. And my dream is to have that many people. And, you know, with that money, we would hire, you know, the attorneys and, and investigators, paralegals, other essential personnel needed to increase our capacity, how many cases we could work on and further our policy aims. So, you know, I'm hoping that uh, people who can help, that can help spread that campaign out and donors of all sizes and people who can help in one way or another, you know, will reach out and uh, help. This is definitely not a one man show for sure. And, you know, we have a, we have a waiting list like everyone. So we, there's a big need to have as many people um, in this as we can. Uh, I do want to add, we're not anti-law enforcement. We're just about accuracy and justice mm -hmm. uh, to back that up. You know, I'm certified as an instructor in New Jersey Acad police academies for the last six years. Twice a year, they bring me in to co-teach the ethics class. I've spoken in front of a lot of groups of prosecutors, and I've spoken in front of judges as well. So, you know, there is buy-in from the law enforcement community when I when I position you know, justice reform, you know, as a nonpartisan issue that's about accuracy and justice, not anti-law enforcement. Only when law enforcement goes rogue or breaks laws or doesn't respect state or U.S. constitutional rights, then that's where it becomes an issue. But Prior to that, you know, I've always said, you know, the police are the first line of defense when it comes to wrongful conviction, because if you don't arrest the wrong person and the train never quite pulls out of the station. Uh, yeah, so I think police should be, in general, should be better trained dealing with mental health issues. Uh, I'm tired of seeing on the news where cops get away with killing people, even when caught on camera and, you know, you know people engaging in brutality aren't prosecuted. I mean, suddenly the prosecutors are inept, right? They can't convict or indict anybody, right? So, you know, that's a disgrace. But on the same time, you know, um, you know, I don't, I don't agree with defunding police. You know, uh, when I, if I call 911, I want a cop on the other end, and I don't want a social worker showing up if I have an emergency. You know, so I, I think that that's a little bit extreme on the other side of the equation as well. So again, like most of these things, I. I, I Think it out. It's not based only on my experience, but my formal education as well. And I try to be middle of the road. I think on many issues, you know, it's it's you know middle of the road, not extreme left or right. Is with the right. What I think the 
correct positions are. Right. No, absolutely. I think that you you definitely don't have to be anti-law enforcement to to understand this story. And, you know, a lot of the, the stories that are out there right now, I think that, you know, any anyone who is for, you know, law enforcement and, and supports law enforcement, as we all really should, you know, they you want it to be correct because that that just makes law enforcement even better. Um, so I think most law enforcement you're, you're going to find are are wishing that everything, you know, the, the, the mistakes are are fixed and, and those you know issues are, are corrected. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. Um, the the other thing, too, I, I just think that it, it just shows a lot about you and your character to, you know, one, one, once you were were exonerated and, and released, it could have been really easy for you to just. I, I know you got a, a uh, you know, compensation. You could have easily taken that and, and just kicked it back somewhere and, and not really helped anyone else. So I think that's a, a, a really powerful thing that you, you took, you know, some of those resources, you, you literally put your, your money where your, your mouth is here and, and, uh, and helped a lot of people. So I think that's a really cool thing. It's been an absolute honor to speak with you. Um, I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. I appreciate yours as well. This is a very pleasant interview, and we went over a lot of um, went over a lot of important issues, some personal things, and not once did you or I ever get in the huff. There you go. <laughs> and that was my interview with Jeffrey Deskovic. Hope you learned a lot. I know I did. Definitely an eye-opening conversation. Um, just the the things that he went through and the mistakes that were made, and uh, you know his his journey to to prove his innocence. Um, just a, a powerful story. Um, he's definitely a, uh, just a, an amazing person with a, with a, just a, a powerful will to, to, to show um, exactly the, the truth. And then furthermore, help people once he, he, um, you know, was, was released. That's, that's, I, I said it to him and, and that's just the, the, the big thing to me that he could have easily taken the money that um, he got for his wrongful conviction was which was not a small sum, um, and, and, you know, kicked it back on the beach somewhere, but he wanted to take it and, and help other people um, not experience what he did. Um, so thanks so much for joining me this week. Really appreciate you being here. Next week, sure to be another interesting guest from all walks of life we, we talked to. Um, see you next time, and take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.